You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. This year marks the 100th anniversary of First Amendment jurisprudence. It wasn't until 1919, in response to the government's repression of critics of World War I, that the Supreme Court began to decide cases that would shape First Amendment doctrine. Two First Amendment scholars, Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, and Jeffrey Stone, a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, have brought together some leading scholars in a new book of essays that explores the evolution of First Amendment doctrine. It's called The Free Speech Century. They join me now. Lee, tell us about the premise of the book. The idea is that this is 100 years old, that is the First Amendment jurisprudence, And most people don't realize that. They think that it goes back uh, at least to the beginning of the country. And while the First Amendment was there, there are no cases until 1919. So everything we have today is the product of the last 100 years. And it's an amazing journey to see that. So I think if you start with Vince Blasey's essay, you get the deep, deep sense of how complex this is, doctrinally, theoretically. And then you go through a whole series of um, essays about particular doctrines, and uh, then you end with the future and Tim Wu, Emily Bell, and so on. So I think sort of as a whole, it tries to tell the story of the last 100 years. Jeff, what do you want readers to get from this collection of essays? I think the most important thing to get out of this set of essays is First, an understanding of the complexity and the challenges posed in giving meaning to the First Amendment, that the simple language of Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press doesn't tell us very much, and that it's taken the court literally a century to get where we are today, and where we are today does not by any means resolve lots of the questions we have to face in the future. So I think part of what the book does is to demonstrate that this is an extraordinarily difficult task, that there are alternative universes one could imagine in which uh, the Supreme Court might have given very different meaning to the First Amendment, and that it's largely a product of logic and history and reason and how things have evolved over time. So I, I think that's the most important thing to me, 
that, that the reader would get out of this, is that this is an ongoing challenge that continues into the future and that begins in a fairly difficult and challenging time, which was World War I. Let's talk about the legal issues raised by the social media giants Facebook, Twitter, and Google. In her essay, Columbia journalism professor Emily Bale writes, The global technology companies are reshaping our concepts of what we mean by mass media, the independent press, and the public sphere. Tell us more about that. This is, I think, one of the major questions of the time and of the future. So you start with the fact that the Internet is the most recent uh, new communications technology that's been invented and implemented. One of the things that's happening is that it has undermined the business model of the traditional press, the newspapers and radio and TV, but especially daily newspapers. And this is a major question for the country, how we're going to sustain a fourth branch of government, as we like to call it, an independent, free, journalistic enterprise. So that's number one. Secondly, as you have more and more people talking and receiving news and thinking in the context of social media, a number of questions then follow. How much control do the companies that are really now semi, they are monopolies, have over who is speaking and what is said on that? Some people think today that too much is allowed, too much hate speech, foreign manipulation of speech and so on. Other people, as Emily points out, are concerned that the companies are exercising too much censorship of speech. So you have, at its most elementary level, a question from the First Amendment. If you think about the public forum in which public issues uh, are discussed and debated, how willing are we as a society to allow that to be so controlled by private companies? And then if you are troubled about that, what can be done about it? Jeff, there's a lot of talk today about trying somehow to regulate these social media platforms. What's your take on whether there'll be regulation in the future and whether there should be regulation? What's happened with respect to the social media platforms is that when they first came into existence, Congress decided that they should be treated very differently than newspapers or television shows or or book publishers. The conventional forms of communication are all liable for allowing publications or allowing speakers to express views that otherwise would be the basis for civil liability or criminal liability. So the New York Times publishes something which is defamatory or something which is a threat, then not only is the author liable, but the New York Times is liable. And when social media came into existence and these platforms came into existence, Congress decided to treat them quite differently. And the idea was that they would be neutral opportunities to enable private individuals to utilize these sources of communication um, without having anyone screen what they can say in the way that, that newspapers and TV and radio and so on do that screening. And therefore, the platforms would be immune from any liability for whatever you or I put on Facebook or Twitter. And the idea then was that this would be an opportunity for individual citizens to communicate directly with fellow citizens with no intermediary, even though they themselves could be liable for violating the law. But the problem there, I think, is that that what we've seen is, is so many people are engaging in speech that other people find deeply problematic and that bringing lawsuits against them is not realistic, that there's increasing pressure on the part of these social media platforms to engage in the kind of screening that originally it was conceived that they wouldn't do. 
And that, that poses a very serious question, because we want to give these private entities the kind of power to decide what ideas, what points of view can be expressed, and which ones can't, when social media has now become so powerful. On the other hand, having government involved in dictating to them what can be said and what can't be said is equally problematic, because we don't generally trust the government in this regard. So it's created a real challenge going forward to figure out how we deal with this. And, and I think that's one of the great challenges of, of social media as we look to the future. The movie The Post brought the Pentagon Papers case to a new generation. David Strauss, a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, writes about it in his essay, and he brings in the contrast with the massive leak by Edward Snowden. Tell us more about that. So Pentagon Papers is one of the uh, landmark cases of the First Amendment, of course, from the 1970s. And the majority of the court held that the government could not enjoin the New York Times or the Washington Post from publishing the classified information in the uh, Pentagon Papers. This was a landmark case because it established uh, as a general principle the independence of the press and its role in informing the public about the government. It dealt with what is an abiding dilemma for any society, but let's focus on American society. The government has to have some degree of secrecy in order to operate. Uh, that's just a practical reality. On the other hand, it tends to, and it's inclined to over-protect information from the public, and the public needs that information in order to exercise its sovereign powers of self-government. How you draw that balance is one of the great questions of, of any free society. Britain draws it in one way. If you publish classified information, you're automatically criminally responsible. In the United States, we allow the press to publish this under certain conditions. The problem is that today, as David Strauss points out and Jeff and I pointed out, we may have different facts than we had in the time of the Pentagon Papers case. So, number one, so that case involved the Washington Post, the New York Times, trustworthy institutions. Today, it's WikiLeaks, which is hardly an institution that takes the interests of the United States into consideration as it publishes things. Secondly, the amount of information that can now be released, the uh, Snowden type of hundreds of thousands of pages of classified information, is so much greater than Daniel Ellsberg going to a Xerox machine and putting out uh, the Pentagon Papers. So the risk of bad things, that is, bad things from the standpoint of U.S. security being released, is much higher today. So these are new facts. Jeff can add to this because he's been very involved in uh, thinking about this at uh, national level. But it is a deep, abiding, and puzzling dilemma. So, I mean, Lee has described quite well David Strauss's essay here, and uh, Strauss puts his, his finger on a really important point, which is that the capacity of an individual leaker to reveal far more information much more easily than was ever possible in the past because of changes in technology is very different than it's ever been. And the ability of the United States to rely upon responsible media to exercise good judgment in deciding what to publish is no longer available because there are so many other ways, as in WikiLeaks, for example, to publish this information and make it available. That creates a real challenge. There is, in fact, a major problem of overclassification within the government. And I think the government could help itself if it could focus much more on what exactly it needs to classify and what it doesn't. And then it could focus better on keeping certain information confidential and secret and reduce the opportunities for leaks. But I do think that the vulnerability that we now face is much greater. The damage done by Edward Snowden to the national security was far greater than anything that Daniel Ellsberg did. 
And I know that created real concerns within the, the national security part of the government. Nonetheless, interestingly, no effort was made to punish any of the entities that published the information, although obviously Snowden is subject to possible criminal prosecution. But I think this poses a serious challenge for the future, because it is important for the government to be able to keep certain things confidential, and they need to figure out how to do that more effectively. Courts eventually will have to figure out whether there, there's a need for greater intervention than the Pentagon Papers suggested. I'm very nervous about doing that, but at the same time, I do see the dangers that can arise with unrestricted leaks and unrestricted publications. Thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, and Jeffrey Stone, a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. Their book is called The Free Speech Century. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.